This morning we're looking at uh, part two of Count It All as Loss, the life of the Apostle Paul and his encounter with Christ. Now our kids are leaving for Kids Church, so thank you children and leaders as our Kids Church ministry resumes. So in our series so far we, we see that the, the Bible, we have seen that the Bible is full of stories of those whose lives have been amazingly transformed after an encounter with the living God. One of the most dramatic in how it happened and, and its impact in the spread of the gospel was the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Last week we did the, the lead up to his encounter. We looked at his life previous to what we're looking at today. How he was uh, educated, how he had a passion, uh, a zeal, thinking that he was serving God by destroying the church. But all that changed on a trip to Damascus. Uh, And this is why the Damascus experience has come to to mean a, a radical change even people who, don't, who are not Christians use this term to indicate a radical change in someone's life. So Paul's conversion is, is such a crucial event in church history regarded as only second to the resurrection of Christ when it comes to convincing proofs of the way of, that God's power works, the truth of the gospel, the Christian faith is real. Because from a human, purely human perspective, Saul was the unlikeliest of candidates for salvation. It would be comparable to hearing that the late terrorist Osama bin Laden had been converted and sent as an evangelist, as a missionary to Israel. You get the, you get the, the glimpse of the scale, right? There was no natural explanation for Saul's conversion. But when we look at it, when we think about it a bit more, there is actually no natural explanation for anybody's true conversion either. Because salvation is from the Lord, not from man. After all, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So if you have family, friends, children, grandchildren who are far, far away from the Lord, as we all do, continue to pray. Continue to pray for the only one who is able to change somebody's life. Jesus said that the gospel witness would start in Jerusalem and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the the previous chapters in Acts, the previous eight chapters in Acts, tell us how the gospel was preached throughout Samaria and Judea by men as Philip and then others, and then they were joined by the apostles like Peter and John. With all of this happening, the sovereign Lord was preparing the instrument by which the gospel would take a a big leap, a big jump to the next and final stage as the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. This is why chapter 9 is so crucial. But verses 1 and 2 
And, and to make it easier to follow today's headlines, uh, to this morning's uh, chapter headlines, um, I'm gonna, it starts with the letter I, okay? So first of all, he was determined to injure, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murder, murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Sometime later, in the city of Antioch, believers will be called Christians for the first time. But here, here it says, uh, and he asks him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. So this is the first time uh, that we hear, we, we, we hear this term, those who belong to the, the way. Um, it is not clear if this name they gave themselves or was it given to them by others. In any case, it was a good fit because people saw that they had a different way of life. There were people who operated on a different drumbeat to the rest of the world. And Saul was determined to hunt them down, wherever they may be, men, women, families. And, and, and so determined that he was going to go outside of the boundaries of Jerusalem, outside to another country to pursue them, wherever they're going to be. His passion, obsession, or focus, he was sleeping and, and breathing in an atmosphere of hate, of violence and murder against them. Do you know that there are people today who have the same goal and agenda? Nothing much has changed in 2,000 years. Just this week, um, a Christian in Egypt was murdered by ISIS. It was all filmed and videoed. Christian. What is interesting is that four years ago they did the same thing to his son, his very own son, and now they came for the father. we still be hunted down. And it's interesting that Jesus took Paul out of the land of Israel to appear to him and convert him. I don't want to stretch the point too far, but it's almost as if these Christians were used as bait for a bigger purpose in God's kingdom. And because there is a distance of 300 kilometres between Jerusalem and Damascus. That's a long way. Which... And, and, of course, Damascus in Syria has been in the news uh, for the many years now because of the conflict that's been happening over there. But the location of his conversion was strategic as it was already signalling that Paul would be an apostle to the Gentiles. And, and there is rich irony. See if you can follow me here. There is rich irony, of course, that Saul travels great distances out of his way to persecute those followers of the way, only to be struck down along the way and be shown a radical new way to live. Later, later 
you join in the dots here. Later on, he would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. This is what he would say. But I will show you the most excellent way. And then in chapter 13, he will hold chapter on love. How can anybody write about love the way the Apostle Paul did unless he has been shown the most excellent way and then go and tell others about it? Verses 3 to 5, divine intervention. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. So Saul and his companions, are, as they're travelling along, are struck down by blinding light. Brighter than the noonday sun. And Saul got a glimpse of Jesus in his glory and the brightness of the light caused him to go temporarily blind. That's how bright it was. Perhaps in today's insatiable search for justice, many would prefer that Saul be struck dead by Jesus for his crimes. And if we did a survey, we'd probably say, yep, just kill him, slay him, destroy him. Of course, God is more than capable of doing that and he has actually done so in the past. But here, something radical happens when Saul is shown wonderful, inexplicable, undeserving, amazing grace. The others with him did not see the risen Jesus, but Saul did. It tells us that this encounter was targeted and meant for one person only. He heard his voice, he knew what he said, and this of course had great effect on him. And this was the first of three occasions in which the Lord Jesus would appear to the Apostle Paul. And in order for him to be called an Apostle, this would be important, having seen the Lord. And when when he was retelling, retelling, because he goes on to retell his conversion experience in the book of Acts another couple of times, and so when he, later on in chapter 26, when he's in front of King Agrippa, Uh, Paul recounts what Jesus told him and this is what he said. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Today it would mean something like, it is useless for you to fight against my will. Now apparently to kick against the goads was, it's not a common expression today, but it was was a common rural expression found in both uh, Greek and Latin Literature. It rose from the, the practice of farmers goading their oxen in the fields. So you've got your oxen, you've got your plough behind, or you've got your oxen, you've got your cart. And in order for the oxen to keep moving forward, because sometimes they're just stubborn and they don't want to move anywhere, you know, the, the guy behind would just got a long stick with a pointy end and, and you know, getting, giving some encouragement. To move on. 
Occasionally, occasionally, the, the, the beast would kick at the goad against the stick that was, you know, pointing at him. And the more that the ox kicked, the more likely that the goad would stab into the flesh of his leg, causing greater pain. Don't tell the RSPCA, but this used to happen in history. Okay. If we push Jesus' statement a little bit further, while Saul's conversion appears to have been a sudden encounter with Christ, it is also likely that Jesus had been working on Paul for years, prodding and and, and goading him. And, 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 And it's, although... Saul took no interest in Jesus when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Saul would have heard Jesus heal, his healing and, and teach in public places around Jerusalem, but dismissed him as nothing more than a charlatan. This is why he took no interest. He didn't see Jesus the same way that he was forced to see Jesus now. But now the Lord is in control and Paul had to fall off his high horse, his pride and power crashing down. His response is both spiritual and physiological as he didn't eat or drink for three days. Just like when a person is mourning over the death of a loved one, that person doesn't want to, in deep grief, that person doesn't want to eat doesn't want food or, or drink some, so many times. So, so Saul loses his appetite while mourning what? He's mourning his past, his, his sinful life. Someone said, before a man becomes a saint, he must, he must first see himself as a hopeless sinner. And while some may be deeply convicted of sin before conversion, others may experience it in, a more, in, in more depth the older you get. And, and especially those of us who have been born in Christian homes, perhaps this is some of your experience as well, that you, most of the times you, you were a, a good boy, a good girl. But as, 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 you, as you grow and mature in the Christian faith, there, there, there is a, a realisation of how bad sin really is. There is no such a thing as a truly born-again Christian who lacks a growing sense of his own sinfulness. And it causes us, on the one hand, to to mourn for our sin, but at the same time be grateful for Christ's mercy and grace and transforming power. Which leads to the acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy where you finally, as, he, as Philippians 3.8, count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ. Counted all things as loss. 
But there is also tenderness here. When Jesus asks, he says, Saul, Saul, why why are you persecuting me? Where is the tenderness? Well, the double mention of his name shows the Lord's firm yet tender care for him. Uh, Where do I get this from? Well, Jesus did this when he said, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon. Uh, Or when he was grieving, crying over Jerusalem, Jerusalem, twice. It's it's Jesus' tenderness coming out, his care. Why are you doing this? The point of question was to make Saul consider what he was doing. While thinking he was zealous for the Lord, he was actually doing the opposite, persecuting him. And then in verse 69, he's given instructions. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men around stood speechless. Three days he was blind, didn't eat or drink. Once the Apostle Paul or Saul could do what he wanted, now he had to follow instructions from the Lord about what he had to do next. He had originally set off from Jerusalem to Damascus with authority, full authority, to go out and chase and get and arrest Christians. And after the Lord strikes him down, he had to, what? He had to be led by the hands as a blind man into the city. Do you see what Jesus did? He was handicapped. At first, he was independent and strong. Afterwards, he's dependent and weak. You see, no one is truly trusting in Christ for salvation who is boasting in himself. And Paul will talk a lot about that. If he's going to boast about anything, it'll be about Christ. And, and he is now experiencing the lifestyle which belongs to a truly safe Christian. What is that? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, he would say to the Corinthians. Because at conversion you change from thinking that you can run your own life, that you are Superman, to suddenly recognise that you are nothing. To surrender to the surrendered life, from running the show to being a big player. And this is exactly one of the reasons why many don't want to become Christians because they want to remain in charge. They want to sit on the throne. Nobody's going to yank them from their throne. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. No one except God, that is. And this is what's going to happen. This is going to be the chosen instrument in verses 10 to 15. Chosen instrument. 
For the first time in his life, Saul isn't just reciting ritualistic prayers. He's really praying. He's saying, Saul, you know, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from praying for Saul, for he is praying. He is really praying. He is praying from the heart, really seeking after God. And God hears the prayers from the heart. It wasn't a ritualistic prayer that you just sort of say, which, you know, you say stuff with your mouth, but your heart is totally detached. No, this is deep prayer. No doubt he was seeking God's forgiveness for the many terrible things he had done and then praying God's guidance for what he should do next. But this is, of course, easier said than done because, because of his reputation in, in persecuting Christians for a while, he would find himself in no man's land. He would be hated by the Jews and mistrusted by Christians. We know what he's done. How can we possibly trust him? And you can understand that. And we can understand Ananias has been hesitant to, to meet up with him. But the Lord reassures him, telling him, this is when you know when the Lord tells you something, go! Okay, this man is my chosen instrument. It's going to be a tool in my hand to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Yes, I know how much suffering he caused a lot of the fellow believers, but now he will suffer for my name. So here we're given an insight into Paul's ministry and what it would entail. Firstly, where his ministry will be manifested. It will be to three groups. It would be to the, to the Gentiles, that great mass of people outside, of pagans outside of Israel, which includes you and me. Then to the kings, he was to come before, before the most powerful empire that the world has ever known. Right? And lastly, he was to be a minister to the sons of Israel. And although he would have a great impact on on his own nation, and he loved his nation, he was primarily a minister to the Gentiles. And how was Paul going to make his impact? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He was called to suffer. How is that for a calling, eh? Sounds a little different to uh, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I'd be attracted to that. How about in those tracks, Jesus calls you to suffering? Oh, thank you. I'm really interested now. The Christian life, and I think, I think we, have to, we have to be honest in our evangelism, don't we? We're not selling ice cream, guys. 
the Christian life invariably involves suffering. This man is called to enter into the sufferings of Jesus Christ because Jesus loves the world. He loves fallen man and wants to redeem him. But he cannot redeem without being hurt in return. Formerly he inflicted suffering Suffering on others, now he will suffer much for the sake of Christ. He cannot be a tool in God's redemption, an instrument in God's redemption plan, unless he suffers along with Christ. Formerly he despised the Gentiles, now he will offer them the riches of Christ. And and later, this is what he wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 17. This is what he wrote. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed what? If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in the glory. Folks, there will be no glory if there is no suffering. And that is, is, a, is a message of Anzac Day as well, right? There is no glory unless there is suffering. Somebody had to do the suffering, pay the price. And of course, Jesus did that for us on the cross. And we are called to follow Jesus Christ. We are called not just to accept that he suffered for us, but we are called to share in the suffering. Now, I know, I know our comfort-seeking lifestyle is really going to struggle with that one. But it is an essential part of our calling. Don't think it's strange. Don't think it's strange. And suffering is not when the air conditioning stops working, right? Let me just be clear about that. Suffering is not when your car just breaks down and you're annoyed because you haven't found a parking spot in, at Westfield, that's not suffering, guys. Can we just get off clear, right? But now he's included. Verses 17 to 19. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that God has a program and his followers are forever trying to catch up with God's program. And what's the program? Bringing people together. And an eyes on the one hand, an obedient servant of God, after he receives the confirmation that he he needs from the Lord, he goes to Saul, he greets him because Saul has already received a vision, Ananias received a word and through vision, through word, the two meet, the two come together. And he greets him with these wonderful words. What are the wonderful words? Brother Saul. You meet him for the first time. Right? This murderer. I would have taken a baseball bat. 
before I call you a brother, let me just do a couple of things. Saul, this is from, you know, my cousin Jimmy. Calls him brother Saul to a man who was confused and lost. These words must have sounded like drinking cool water on a, on a hot day. Brother, family, right? Included, accepted, finally home, part of the new family of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, baptised, regained his strength. He took his place as a Christian and not just as a Christian, as, a, as an amazing witness. He identified himself with those who bear the name of Jesus Christ. And the fact that the scales fell from his eyes is both literal and it's symbolic as well, isn't it? His eyes are open to a new reality. All those prejudices of of a Pharisee against the Gentiles, all the bigotry, the pride and the anger against Christians, all all of that disappeared when he encountered Christ. If you still have prejudice, if you still have bigotry in your heart, it tells me something. You are really struggling with Christ and his program. Now this man saw the whole world, the Jews and Gentiles alike, men and women bearing the image of God, needing to be redeemed. He never again looked at them any longer in any other way. Now Saul's experience is a wonderful reminder that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Not even someone as sinful as Saul. Anyone can receive God's forgiveness if they repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And God can speak to us in whatever way he chooses. He can appear to us in a flash of light. And he has. But mostly, he will do it through his holy word. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus' name, to be welcomed into the eternal family of our Saviour. To deserve. Like Saul, we have done nothing to deserve God's mercy. It is a free gift of his wonderful grace. We accept it by faith. Hope and pray that all of us here have done that. And all glory be to him. Amen.